Suppose you are a resident in an incorporated village filled with a rich history and dedicated village services, such as its own police department or a community center that stages events for the public. Now suppose you have the choice to maintain the incorporated status of the village and keep the services but pay more in taxes, or to dissolve the village, be absorbed by the town, and save money. What might you do? This is Policy Outsider from the Rockefeller Institute of Government. I'm Alex Morse. Today, we have Dr. Lisa Parshall, fellow at the Rockefeller Institute of Government, to discuss her report on village dissolution in New York State. Lisa looks at the community-level response to the dissolution debate, where she identifies some of the non-economic reasons that village residents are often reluctant to dissolve. Lisa is a professor of political science at Damon College in Amherst, New York, specializing in politics, public law, and public policy. Lisa's research interest is in municipal development and reorganization in New York State, and she's with us today to discuss her latest report, Dissolving Village Government in New York State. Lisa, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Alex. To get our listeners up to speed, what is village dissolution, and why is there a push to dissolve village governments? Okay, well, in a nutshell, villages are the only form of municipal government in New York State that can be incorporated and dissolved by a purely local act, that is, by a vote of the residents who live there. So in New York, we have four levels of government, state, county, towns, cities, and villages. Towns, cities, and villages are sort of sun-state municipal governments, all of which are general service providers. And the functions of these have grown more similar over time. So towns started out as subdivisions inside their county, and so cities and villages incorporated as population centers within the town. The big difference, Alex, between a city and a village in New York is it's not based on size. So we actually have some villages that are bigger than most cities and a few cities that are smaller than some of our villages. The difference is after incorporation, villages remain part of the town. That is, village residents vote in town elections and they pay town taxes, whereas city residents do not. So under village law, which dates back to the 1840s, villages can be incorporated by a petition of the residents if they meet basic territorial and population requirements, which are actually quite minimal. And village governments can also be dissolved by a petition and a vote of its residents. So the reason there's a push to dissolve villages in particular is really there's a belief New York just has too many governments and that these leaders are contributing to the high property tax burden. And so while the Empowerment Act was passed in 2009, effective in 2010, it's broader than village dissolution. And what is the Empowerment Act? How does it work? Okay, so the Empowerment Act, otherwise known as the New New York Municipal Reorganization and Citizens Empowerment Act, was passed in 2009 at the uh, urging of then Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, and it became effective in March 2010. It's a change to our general municipal law in New York State that is designed to make consolidations and dissolutions that are initiated by citizens easier. So it's designed to open the pathway for citizens to compel local government reorganization, and it does that in three ways. 
First, it lowered the petition requirements um, necessary to put this on the ballot from 33% to 10% for larger communities. It shortened the length of the study process. It puts mandatory timelines in place for what happens once a petition is filed. And then finally, it has facilitated the number of communities putting dissolution to a public vote. So it has produced uptick in the number of recent dissolutions. And it provides two mechanisms. One is a board-initiated process. The other is the citizen-initiated process. The board-initiated process, the primary difference there is that when the board moves for a dissolution or consolidation, a study will precede it being put to a public vote. In the citizen-initiated, the process is reversed. There is a vote prior to a study. And that was done purposefully in order to ensure that elected officials couldn't stymie the process at the study phase. So effectively, what the Empowerment Act does is it empowers citizens to say, we would like you to explore consolidation and dissolution as a mechanism of saving money, go forth and create a plan. And the law spells out a timeline by which that has to happen and then be put to a public vote. One of the flaws of the law, if you will, is that the process it establishes becomes a point of discouragement for residents. So residents will often say, how can I possibly vote on dissolution before there is a study in place? And this uncertainty becomes very powerful in the, the narrative debate. The law does provide, once a plan is finalized, a 45-day window for a permissive referendum where citizens who are opposed to dissolution can petition to force a revote. So the law does allow for sort of a second thought after the plan is created. But at that first referendum, do you want to dissolve or not, that becomes a big talking point in the debate. How can we vote on dissolution when there is not yet a plan in place? What have the results been so far? In some ways, the Empowerment Act has been successful. It's increased the number of communities that are looking at um, village dissolution. It's produced an uptick in the actual number of villages that have dissolved, and it's actually shortened the process. So if you look at since 2010, there have been 41 votes on village dissolution, 17 of which have resulted in the decision of the village to dissolve. But basically what that means is that the Empowerment Act has been successful in making it easier for citizens to get dissolution to the ballot. But if you measure success as how often when they vote do the residents actually approve dissolution, the Empowerment Act is technically less successful than the previous law. Its win rate is 42%, whereas under the previous law, 60% of those that went to a vote actually were approved. Now, we put a big caveat in there because under the old law, residents didn't get to vote on it if the local elected officials weren't supportive of it. So under the old law, the way the law worked is there was a study process that was mandatory before the citizens got to vote. And what would happen is that often the local elected officials would stall that study process. So actually fewer dissolutions actually reached the ballot. So when they did reach the ballot, they reached the ballot with more of a consensus of support of local elected officials. So would you say that the Empowerment Act, in that sense, has given power back to the people? It has. I mean, if you look at this, even, even a loss is a win in that sense because 
it is up to the residents of the village to decide whether to keep their incorporation or terminate that incorporation and dissolve and turn over administration and functions to the town. And that is something that the governor has said pretty consistently. He wants to leave it to the voters to decide. It is a, a decision of local act. He has, however, I think with um, property tax caps, the uh, Citizens Empowerment Tax Grant, the tax credit, he's incentivized uh, communities to consider dissolving. But at the end of the day, the mantra is it's up to the residents whether they want to dissolve or not. Why are communities, why are residents reluctant to dissolve? So one of the things that interested me as a public policy scholar is that the law is really predicated on this idea that if you show citizens that there's a possibility of saving money and lowering their property tax burden, that residents will vote to dissolve their communities. And so the law, again, made it easier for residents to uh, force dissolution to a vote and effectively sort of compel their local elected officials to say, look, we want to save taxes, we want to provide services more efficiently, go forth and create a dissolution plan that will do that. What I was seeing, though, is that in the actual public discourse and the debate is that residents who were reluctant to dissolve, they often would dismiss property tax savings and make it less about whether we're going to save on property taxes or what's my service provision going to be. And they started turning to more, um, I would say, intangible arguments about community identity, pride, history. And so while the law is sort of predicated on this idea, and the policymakers have this idea, if you show residents financial savings, they will vote to dissolve. In the actual discourse over dissolution, very frequently residents were talking about things that were much more psychological attachment to their village than worrying about the actual savings. So what I was seeing, for example, in, in 2010 in the first wave of these dissolutions that hit Western New York, is that in affluent communities, you would see the residents say, well, we're willing to pay the higher property tax rates for the amenities of living in the village. And so they would point to things like community parades, festivals, beautification projects, and say, you know, we're not willing to give these up, or we're willing to pay these higher taxes in order to retain this level of services. In less affluent communities and even struggling ones, the incorporation was a symbol of um, survival. And so they would often say, even if you, we have some savings, we're worried about the loss of community identity. And in some cases, it seems to me that they saw dissolution as something that was a retrograde, even sometimes akin to municipal death, something to be resistant. And so whether the community was affluent or struggling, the incorporation itself and all the symbols of the village, the municipal buildings, the police, the fire services, the parks, the festivals, are signs of identity that the residents are not willing to surrender, even if they're facing property tax burdens. I've always found that fascinating, the attachment people have to their communities and their community centers. And people are so attached to their dedicated police service and fire departments that, you know, what happens to villages that lose these services? Right. Well, if we can kind of separate that out for a second, that's something that, you know, I think even as a policy scholar, I didn't quite understand until I started visiting more and more of these communities. And you see how important the symbolism is, the signage, the buildings. And when you see some of these buildings sitting empty, you understand where people then feel that there's something now that's missing, that's derelict. 
Um, in small villages in particular, the village hall, you know, serves a multiplicity of functions. It's not only a seat of government where you go for services, it's where you may have community events or after-school programs. Very often these are located in the same space as things like the village library or the village court. And so these things become emblematic of the community itself. And having them go empty or turn property turned over to the town or sold for the alleviation of village debt, people feel that very acutely as a loss. When you think about police and fire services, again, I would say there's sort of a twofold aspect. The first is symbolic. When we have parades or community days, the police and the firefighters are there. The iconography of the village is right there, blazoned on the side of the fire truck. And these are important parts of the community identity. And very frequently, these are friends and neighbors. These are people that are known throughout the community. So there is that feeling that dissolution is also unneighborly and that they want not to hurt their friends and neighbors who are providing these services. Then there's also the aspect, I think, of police and fire services where people are just concerned about the service level. And so in some ways, when you look at police and fire services, these are indispensable services. There will be fire. There will be fire protection. There will be police protection. But people become very fearful that there will be a diminishment of these services once they have dissolved. So they began talking about things like response time. In some cases, you'll see the hyperbole is, is quite stark, where people will say dissolving could literally cost you your life in terms of a longer response of a fire police department. Is there any evidence that that's true? I think not. Again, these are indispensable services that will be provided by the town or the county in the case of village dissolution. So I do think that many of these diminishment of service arguments are overblown. But again, I recognize that the psychological attachment is there. And in some cases where we have seen uh, administration of police go over to the town or the county, I have heard anecdotally residents say that actually they find the service delivery now to be more professional. In some ways, it's less personalized, but more professional. How do towns who have to absorb villages feel about the dissolution? Yeah, what's going on with the towns? Well, that's, that's interesting, and it does depend somewhat case by case. In some dissolution cases, there's acrimonious relationships between the village and the town, and that will contribute to a reluctance to dissolve. With town administrations, town supervisors, and town officials, they very often will remain on the sidelines of, of dissolution. I mean, remember that village voters are town voters no matter what. But when the village dissolves, the property and administration of the village will transfer to the town. The interesting thing about village dissolution is that it is up to the village residents to dissolve. And the creation of a dissolution plan is driven by the village with the involvement of the town if they choose. But the actual implementation of that plan will be by the town once it takes over administration. So in other words, you know, the village dissolution study proposes, but the town actually disposes in the implementation. So sometimes village residents may be reluctant to dissolve because they don't necessarily trust that the town is going to implement the dissolution plan as it was laid out. What I have seen, again, anecdotally, is that when the town officials are involved, it can often assuage citizen concerns. So when town officials give assurances to village residents that 
if this happens, we will take care of these services, that goes a long, long way in alleviating some of the concerns that village residents have. But towns can be leery, town officials. You can think of it almost as an upvolving of some of the problems and the challenges that we're facing the village now will become the burden of the town to administer. In many cases, the dissolution studies will show a alleviation or a decrease in property tax burden for the residents of the former village, sometimes accompanied by a small uptick in the um, town outside of village tax burden. So sometimes you'll have town outside of village residents reluctant or unhappy about the prospect of dissolution because they fear they already are or will be subsidizing the village. But town outside of village voters in dissolution don't have a say in whether the dissolution carries forward or not. But there are definitely frictions in many cases between the village and the town and concerns about what happens when village affairs become administered by the town. I'd like to return back to the emergency services. What happens to displaced personnel if those services are consolidated or dissolved? In some cases, there will be um, an elimination of personnel. Of course, you're going to lose your uh, village mayor and your village trustees. But in cases where you know the village is, is heavily populated or requires a lot of services, sometimes the town can absorb those, but very frequently the town will have to take on former village employees. So this becomes sort of a trade-off, right? If you think about sort of the buckets of savings that you can get out of dissolution, wages and salaries are one of them. But that's going to be offset by the legacy cost of the former village employees. Those don't go away. And any transfer of personnel that needs to go over to the town in order to accommodate the level of services that the village requires. So in some cases, there will be people who will lose their jobs. When you're talking about police consolidation, uh, village police moving into town police, there become issues of unionization and seniority and who gets hired and who doesn't. These can become quite messy and complicated. You can read more of Lisa's report on our website at www.rockinst.org. That's rockinst.org. Lisa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Alex. I'd like to say thanks again to Dr. Lisa Parshall for taking time to discuss what village dissolution means for residents and their communities. As always, you can find Lisa's research and more on our website at rockinst.org. That's R-O-C-K-I-N-S-T dot O-R-G. We can also be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Rockefeller Inst. That's Rockefeller I-N-S-T. I'm Alex Morse. Until next time. Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, the public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following at Rockefeller I-N-S-T, that's at Rockefeller Inst, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? Email us at communications at rock.suny.edu. That's rock, R-O-C-K, dot suny, S-U-N-Y, dot E-D-U.